Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. So we are continuing our study of the book of Deuteronomy and seeing in that book how we draw near to God. Now, if you were to ask almost any Christian, what's the first Bible verse you memorized? Most of us would probably say John 3.16, and rightly so. It's a great verse. It sums up the entire Bible, I think, in in a verse. I think it is the, the best verse. If you only memorize one verse, I think that's the best verse to memorize. But if you were in Jesus's day, when there was no New Testament, and asked somebody like Jesus or any of his countrymen what, what was the first verse, the best verse that they memorized. If you were in Israel, it was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which we'll look at today. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In fact, even Jesus says that Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the entirety of the Old Testament summed up in a verse. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6 has a very special place in Israel's history for most people, certainly back in the days of Jesus, maybe even today, I don't know, but for most of the people back in the days of Jesus, that was where they started. That was, that was where it began. Uh, it, it, has been, it, it is the verse, if we are to draw near to God, Deuteronomy 6 is where we look. This is what it means to draw near to God. How do we love him? How do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength We see that in Deuteronomy 6, and yeah, we don't usually read a whole chapter at once, but we're going to do it this time because it kind of fits together. I find it hard to break up. We'll read the chapter together, and then we'll we'll talk about what we read in it. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you, to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you and your children and and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your, forefathers, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. 
Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. And in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. How do we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength? Well, the first thing we see is fear the Lord. Now, a number of years ago, I had a, had a member of my church ask me the very important question, um, what does that really mean? That surely doesn't mean be afraid of God. If God is our loving Father, we're surely not supposed to be afraid of Him. Sure, surely that just means respect. I've heard that taught many ways. So, being the language guy that I am, who, who has studied Greek and Hebrew, I'll go to the Scriptures and I found out that really does mean be afraid. Uh, the Greek word is phobos. We know what the word phobia means. It doesn't mean respect. The Bible reiterates that God loves us and that we are to love him as well. It says that he is our father, and not even just father, but the Hebrew word Abba means daddy. It's a term of endearment. It's not just a fact that the Bible is very clear here throughout the chapter. From, from, from the beginning of this chapter to the end, fear the Lord. Uh, what does it mean? When the Bible tells us to fear the Lord, how do, how do we do that? And, I, and, and let, me, let me say, this is a struggle. Even, even after years of, of preaching and, and study in Bible college and seminary, uh, I, I do think that this is a little tough to put in balance. But um, let, me, let me give some of my, my thoughts on that. Um, I, I love my father. He, uh, he loves me. I appreciate that we get along. Uh, he's a preacher. His dad was a preacher. I like that I can talk with my dad about sermons and, and things. Um, I had a good childhood. I'm grateful to that. I remember very clearly the day that my father decide, told me to do something and where I was and when I told him no. And I remember very clearly that day, very perfectly. Um, there, there are some choice phrases that, that, are, that are kind of cliche, you know, uphills both way in the snow. There are certain phrases that you think nobody really says that, son, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. It wasn't a cliched phrase that day. I heard that phrase once and I never needed to hear it again. I learned what it, my dad loves me, but I learned what it meant to fear my father. And now that my wife and daughter aren't here today, 
uh, and, I, and I don't have to embarrass either. Pam, we, we had a deal that my wife broke. The deal was I got to be the softy, and she was going to be the hard parent. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> and Pam can tell our daughter to do something four or five or six or seven times, and then she'll say, I'll get daddy, and, sudden, and, and, and 50% of the time our daughter will do it at that point because that's a threat. But the other 50% of the time, I, 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 I am fetched, <laughs> and then our child will do that. Not, not because I don't love my daughter. And, I, and I've learned, <laughs> now I get where my dad was that day in the basement in, in Minneapolis. I, because that scene is very, very stuck in my head, right? I, I totally remember every, every bit about that scene. I get it now. I love my daughter. I want the best for my daughter. But there are rules, and I expect obedience, and they are for the best. And while I want her to love me as well, I, she loves me, and I want her to like me. But I'm going to be honest, as her father, whether or not she likes me in the moment doesn't matter. There are things that she will do because it's necessary. She will take a bath on bath night. She will get time to go to bed. She doesn't get to stay up as late as she wants. And, and if she fears me in the process, I can live with that. Fear and love are not mutually exclusive. Healthy kids fear their parents, and healthy parents are okay with that. We live in a day when parents are, are too interested in being cool and being their kid's best friend, and I think our prison system shows where that gets you. I'm going to be completely honest. I think that has been one of the destructions of our society is that parents... We listened to Dr. Spock too much, and we decided to be friends and not parents. And here we are in our world today. Um, The only way that we can draw near to God is to fear him and to recognize his power. I think that we struggle with this in our culture today. So there is a a movie that George Carlin was in called Dogma. Let me begin with saying, if you haven't seen it, I'm not encouraging you to see it. Let me be very clear, start with that. But in this movie, George Carlin plays a priest, and he has decided that the problem with the church is just not modern enough, and it needs to be modernized and be the church for the modern culture, and he's come up with a bobblehead Jesus called Buddy Christ, who's got the, 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 the fingers pointed out, winking at you. You can buy this. It was very popular post-movie post dogma where, the, where they made it. And, and, and one of the things that I kind of like about that movie is it's very poignant on the problem of the modern church. There are a lot of denominations that absolutely teach this. The church needs to get with the modern program. It's, the Bible is so old-fashioned. Who, who who who's the church to teach these rules from 2,000 years ago? The rest of society has changed. It's the job of the church to keep up with culture. What a horrific concept. <laughs> that the, the Bible is God's eternal truth. And the words of the Bible are unchanging. And whether you like it or not, I don't care. And God probably doesn't care either because he is the creator of the universe, and we are told to get with his program and not, get, not have him get on board with our program. This is what happens when we don't fear the Lord. If we take away the fear of the Lord, we're left with buddy Jesus, a God who winks at you and smiles and says, keep doing whatever you're doing, I love you anyway. And a loving parent doesn't tell their kid who's doing things that are wrong, 
I don't care what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. I love you anyway. I do love my daughter anyway, but I'm going to change her behavior when it's wrong, or she won't grow up to be functional and mature and, and, and the person that she's meant to be. And it is no different with us spiritually. When, when we take away the fear of God, he's not that important. He just affirms what we were going to do without him anyway. What matters to him doesn't matter to us then. It's not that, that big of a deal. Sin becomes, eh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not an issue. God's our buddy. And he's not the mighty warrior that smites that we see throughout the New Testament and, and old. We forget that the God who loves us created the universe and flooded the world and because of sin killed all but eight people. This is a God who cares about sin. This is a God who cares about sin, that he flooded the world once. He sent Jesus to die for a gruesome death that he didn't deserve because sin is not a pet peeve. It's not a do whatever you want to do. Sin matters. It matters to God, and if we fear God, sin matters to us. In the Old Testament, Israel routinely forgot about God, and God would remind them, usually via the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any number of disasters that would strike the land. Why? Because sin was a pet peeve? Clearly not. It mattered to him so much that, that he would do drastic things to get Israel's attention and to punish them for their lack of obedience. Today, he works differently. We don't have to worry about plagues of locusts and famines due to sin. It's not about conquest. And, and unfortunately, because of that, I think that we, have, we, we, we don't keep him in mind as much. God, through his punishment, was very good to Israel because he kept it for permanently on their mind when they would disobey. I and mean, that's the entire book of Judges. Israel had no king. They, every man did what he saw was right in his own eyes. And so the Israel would again sin. God would send in a conqueror. They would cry out for help. God would raise up a judge. The judge would save them and get them back into following God. And then we would repeat that for the next 11 judges. And we, and we just keep doing that throughout the book of Judges. We don't in the U.S., in, in, in our world today in the year 2022, we don't really have God reminding us that way. And so it's easy to forget that we are to fear God and hate sin We've modernized God so much and made him in our own image that we don't know who he is anymore. We let the world tell us instead of the Bible who he is. We need to know him, and when we know him, and if we know the real him, we fear him. That doesn't contradict that he loves us and that we love him, but he is our father. We are kids. We're not equals. I don't, I'm not afraid of my dad anymore. We're, I'm taller than him, so I don't have to worry about that quite as much as I did as a kid. Uh, I'd like to think that we're closer to equals, although he has much more wisdom than, than me because well, he's older than I am. God, I am always God's child. There's never a point that we're equals. There's never a point where God says, Jason, do this, and I say, I don't think I need to do that. that that's not the case. Because I love him and fear him, I obey him. Fear of the Lord is one of the ways that we draw near to God. Following him it seems self-explanatory, but... You know, hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther was a priest who grew disgusted with the problems of the church in that day. 
The church at that time sold indulgences. So here's how this process worked. The church, if, if you had committed a sin, you went to the church and said, boy, I, I messed up, I did this. And the church would say, well, show that you're sorry by giving a special offering to the church, um, doing some act of kindness for the poor, something like that to show that you are serious about repentance and that you want to change your ways and, and that this costs you something, which makes sense. But it was inevitable that at some point it felt like you were buying forgiveness. And then at some point, why don't I just buy it ahead of time? Why don't I just, knowing that I'm not going to live a perfect life and I'm going to mess up down the road, as long as I'm in here and paying for the one that I just did, why don't I pay for the next one while I'm out ahead of time, save me a trip, and, and they would call these indulgences. And effectively, isn't that just saying I'm, I'm buying permission to sin later? I mean, that's what it turned into. And Martin Luther said, that's not what the grace of Christ is supposed to be about. Um, it may sound, the concept of indulgences may sound ridiculous to us today, but I wonder how much we've changed. I, I, I was in a conversation a number of years ago with a friend, and she, she had made the comment that she felt that the problem with the church of the 21st century was that and you've heard this before as well, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, that, that, that they say one thing, but then they act the same as everybody else, and there's really not a lot of difference between them. And, and she might be somewhat correct. I do think that that is a problem of many people who call themselves Christians, and, and it is our struggle. I mean, we're, we're lying if we don't say that, our, that we don't struggle against sin. It's a daily struggle. It's, it's worth a struggle, and I do think that the Holy Spirit makes a difference in our lives, and the longer that I'm a Christian, the struggle gets a little easier because good habits, the Spirit reinforces good habits in my life, but then I find new sins I need to get rid of, right? So there's always that struggle against sin. Some Christians do struggle with transformation, some things that maybe they shouldn't be struggling with after as long as they've been doing it. But this conversation continued, and this young lady said that she thought that she was fine she didn't need to be a Christian because she was a good person and that's good enough to God. Now, let's begin with the fact that everybody thinks they're a good person, right? The, the number of people that wake up in the morning and say, man, it's good to be evil. I think I'm going to keep doing this. Surely that's not even one in a hundred people. Everybody is the hero of their own tale. Everybody ex- has explanations for why they do what they do. I don't know that I've met hardly anybody that thinks that they're a bad person. Everybody thinks they're good. Um, But as I told her, and as we know, if the Bible is true, it doesn't matter. Even if you really are objectively good, being good doesn't save us. Without Jesus in our life, and I told her this, without Jesus in her life, she was lost, we are lost. The story of the Bible is God doesn't save good people because no one is good enough. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. The story of the Bible is it's never good enough because sin is that deadly and that we need God's grace. And so we take that one step further and we say that knowing that God doesn't save the good, that he saves us by grace, sometimes we mess that up and we end it there. Sometimes we think that knowing Jesus is enough because we're saved by grace. I call myself a Christian. I go to church. Therefore, I'm saved. You know, the church once taught, and some churches teach, a legalistic saved by grace 
I'm sorry, a legalistic saved by works mentality. That goes back to what we were talking about with there was a time when the Catholic Church, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and, and you know, back in the dark ages, and, and give this amount of money to the poor and you're guaranteed salvation. But that's, that's not biblical, is it? The certain amount of weeks in the soup kitchen and certain amount of money in the offering plate, and, 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 and that doesn't promise you salvation. In fact, those are just acts. They're works. And Israel had fallen into that. Israel had fallen into this if I tithe... And if I do this, and that was Jesus' constant argument with the Pharisees. You guys are doing all these actions, but your heart isn't anywhere near God. It's not about the actions that you do. It's that your heart needs to be close to God, and then the actions will follow. So some churches and some religions teach this saved by works mentality, where you can earn your way to heaven, but then others teach this saved by grace, and they end it there. As long as you've asked Jesus into your heart, you're going to heaven and nothing else matters. And the Bible doesn't say that. There would be no reason for most of the New Testament, certainly any of the letters that Paul wrote to Christians, telling Christians how to behave if you could do whatever you wanted to do because you're saved by grace. Jesus and the Bible teaches that we are to love God and we are to follow him, and following him is not calling yourself a Christian. Following God assumes language of obedience. We are saved by grace so that we can obey. That's part of the expectation of what it means to be a Christian. And they're not mutually exclusive. The the number of people out there that have bought into this idea that saved by grace and obedience are somehow opposites, that's the same people that think that fearing God and loving God are opposites. We are saved by grace and we are expected to obey. First. Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, we are told that to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. God wants obedience. It matters to him. Giving the offering is good, but obedience is better. Giving, giving to God and it, it is great and attendance is great, but obedience is If all we do is show up at church on Sunday and go through the motions and the rest of the week we don't act like a Christian, this doesn't save us. Are we righteous? Are we obedient to the Lord? Do we follow or are we just an audience listening and then going home unchanged? We are also to focus on the Lord. Again, it seems basic. But what we read in Deuteronomy is that we are to, you know, when we read about put it on your foreheads, uh, put it on, write it on your door frames. What we're talking about is having it in mind all the time in front of us. Anytime that we read the Old Testament, we do have to remember that we're reading someone else's mail. And we have to figure out what it means for us. Now, these were the commands for Israel, but they were left for us to read. We just have to apply them. Doesn't mean we don't listen to it. We definitely should read the Old Testament and apply it. We also have to kind of figure out, it takes a little bit of, of work to, to read what applied to Israel and then pull it out and say, for us, modern day, what does this look like? Not because we're modernizing the gospel, but because we're not called to be Jewish. And we're not called to live in Canaan 3,000 years ago. So there is that, how does this apply? How did it apply to the church 2,000 years ago? Is the same as how it applies to me today? Be very clear on that. How does the Old Testament laws for Israel apply to God's holy people, the church? 
We do this responsibly and find out what God is saying to us. And one of the ways we do that is we compare Old Testament with New Testament. How does Jesus, how do the apostles apply the Old Testament? You do meet some people that apply the Old Testament in weird ways. I've known, known a few people that absolutely felt you have to eat kosher. And that's ridiculous. Jesus himself says all food is clean. That's not how we apply the Old Testament. Had a lady once tell me what tribe of Israel was she was spiritually connected to. I don't see anything in the New Testament that says that Christians pick out their tribe of Israel like, like your favorite TV show, or, or, or maybe you don't pick it. And it's, you know, it, it felt way too much like a Christian version of the Zodiac, to be quite honest. Uh, and I don't see anything like that in the New Testament. But when, is, when we talk, read about Israel possessing God's favor, that that's something they should go after and desire. I'm, I'm on board with I want God's favor. I want to know what that looks like in my life. Uh, in the Old Testament, the people were to keep the land that God gave them. We too, in God's kingdom, want his land. But let's be clear, we, we know from the New Testament that we're not, we're not set to inherit this. We're not, we're not set to inherit West Virginia or the United States. We're talking about heaven. That, that's our inheritance. We seek his promise, his promised eternal kingdom uh, when we join him forever in heaven. The Israelites were told how they could keep God's favor. They had to keep focused on him in, throughout the day. Everything they did, it was all done to the glory of God. Is that not the same for us? We want to keep him in mind constantly, not make, not, not make him Sunday morning only. To inherit his blessings, we keep our focus on him. Moses says, love the Lord. Don't, again, you know, liking him, that's not really the point. I, I'd like it if my daughter liked me. She doesn't have to. I hope she does, but love is more important than liking. We are to love the Lord. Liking is, is good if we can. We are to put him and keep him first. Moses says, remember the Lord. Now, somebody's going to say, yeah, but, but how can I forget God. Well, so many of us out of sight, out of mind. We go somewhere on a Friday night and suddenly being a Christian isn't as important as it is on Sunday morning. If I could keep God in mind all the time, I would not sin as much. I suspect we're all like that. So let me ask then this, what is the definition of righteousness? It's not acting holier than thou. You know, we look at this last verse. If we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Uh, to obey the Lord is to be righteous. And so what does that mean? Righteousness is to be in a right relationship with God. That's, that's what the Christian is after. Hmm? Cheating on my wife will not strengthen my relationship with her. It will ruin the relationship. It will not strengthen it. Like in, in a similar way, cheating on God, which is disobedience, will not will it will never help my relationship with him. It will hurt it. To walk with the Lord is to love and obey him. These are not mutually exclusive words. In fact, they complement each other perfectly. Uh, that's how we draw near to him. That's how we become righteous. Our hymn of decision today is hymn number 348.
Let me say, the Lord is not looking for people who possess faith. The Lord is looking for people whose faith possesses them. We're not called to believe in God, but to follow and obey and love. And that's harder than believing in God. If you haven't made the decision to follow and obey and love the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ, I would like to talk with you today about what that looks like. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.